Thessalonica in Acts 17, starting with verse 1. It says that when Paul and his companions had passed through that first one, Amphipolis, there's another option, and um, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and and proving that the Messiah, who had to suffer and rise from the dead, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Then some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So if you remember in Philippi, there wasn't a, um, a, a Jewish synagogue. Remember, that was you know, quite profound. And so they were looking out. They went to worship kind of an outdoor place. And, um, and you know, but here in Thessalonica, there was a, a Jewish population. So it warranted a, a Jewish synagogue, which is Paul's custom. And it's clear here in, in Acts that this is kind of what Paul usually like to do. He liked to go to the synagogue. Why? Because the synagogue was a meeting place. So people went, the Jews specifically, went to go to worship. And he wanted to reach out to the Jewish people. Now we know Paul's mission opened up radically to the Greeks, you know, to the point where a lot of people see Paul as being that missionary to the, the Gentiles. But regardless, it was in his heart to go to the synagogues because he understood the synagogue is a place where they read scripture, where they analyzed scripture. And to Paul, for Paul, in his mind, Jesus was all over scriptures. Jesus was the Messiah. So if you want to bring Jesus people, you brought them to people who were open to scriptures. I mean, that makes sense, right? If this Messiah, if Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for, he's come, then the best place to do is go to a place where people are open to reading the scriptures, now, we know that Paul, he had various techniques. In fact, when he gets to, um, to Athens, you know, he's going to use the, the Greek you know, method. But, but, but I think Paul, it seems to me, because this is his custom, that he's more comfortable in the Jewish synagogue. And certainly, as a Pharisee or an ex-Pharisee, you know, he felt comfortable in the synagogues. Um, and plus, in his mind, he probably thought there's no better place to go but to a place where they're discussing scriptures. And that's exactly what he did. It made sense. It was reasonable. I want, I'm here in town. We're in a new place. Don't forget, he's, I don't think he's ever been there before. I, I think it's, it's pretty much common knowledge that this is his first time in Thessalonica. And he's getting right to it. How do I bring Jesus to these people? Well, his preference is the synagogue, where they are already looking at the scriptures. And look at how what he what he did. First of all, he spent three Sabbath days, and the reason why I, I thought it was interesting, they spent three Sabbath days, is he didn't he didn't waste his time. He wanted to keep moving. He wanted to keep going. 
And so what, what, what is three days? Sabbath, what, what, does that, what does that mean? Is there some kind of a spiritual significance? I don't, I don't think it's a real spiritual, really a spiritual significance behind why three. I think it's more of a practical thing. I think three days, three, well, three Sabbath days basically means three weeks, okay? So three weeks in a row, um, three Sabbath times. So in the Sabbath time was a day was a day where they went to, to come to worship. So why three? I think it's because it's sufficient. Three days is all you really need to clearly communicate the gospel. In fact, I would go as far to say that that's actually probably a little bit overzealous, overambitious. Because the gospel, in my opinion, as you guys know, time and time again, is really easy. I think for ministers, you know, to take a class on the gospel is kind of silly. Because I think the gospel can be taught in, in one sitting. You sit with someone, you explain to them what the gospel is, you get it. Now, the gospel for each person, this is a beautiful thing about the gospel, it develops. It gets deeper and richer as you walk with Christ. And so you're, the, the meaning of the gospel, your, the way you see the gospel, i.e. your interpretation of the gospel, will deepen and mature as you deepen and mature. But, to, but the gospel message initially is straightforward and simple. So three Sunday mornings of just going over what the gospel is, is, well, is, is more than enough. More than enough time. And that's why I think he did that. He wanted to move on and start preaching the gospel at other places. So, but, but look how he did it. And how he did it is he did it by reasoning with them. The word reason means to think different things with oneself. So think about like your days in school, college, or university when you're learning something. You think different things. So you're reading new information and you're trying to process it or digest it. That's what he did with them. It wasn't just a, hey, let me throw some stuff at you and it'll basically stick, hopefully, and then you'll leave and then you'll forget about it. That's, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is there's a processing going on in the person's minds to think different things with oneself, to mingle through with thought, to converse, discourse with one, argue, discuss. So, reasoning from the scriptures. So, again, like, well, we have our Bibles here. The word scriptures means, you know, you know holy writings, you know, accepted writings. And so, for them, it would be a lot of what we have today in our Old Testament, basically. So, scriptures. So, very similar to what we do on church every Sunday. We reason, we think about the scriptures. And they explained to them, and they proved. So, explaining and proving, explaining. To open one's mind, or the, the, to open the mind of one. So again, to convince someone, to cause to understand a thing. So again, you know, there's a relationship. So he went to this, this place, these synagogues, and he wanted to go to make relationship, to have this, this dialogue, to have this discourse, where there's thinking, there's reasoning, there's looking, and there's, you know, to give understanding of a thing. Of course, you know, the thing is, is Jesus being the Messiah. And the fact that he had to suffer and then rise from the dead. That was the content. That was the object of their reasoning. And he wanted them to understand it. That this is what had to happen for the Messiah. The Messiah had to suffer and then rise from the dead. This is what happened to happen. And they're using the scriptures. So it's in the Old Testament for us. And for them, it's for their scriptures that they read, you know, week to week. He's explained to him, please understand it, folks. And then he proves it. Proving. Is it the idea of proving, I think a better way of saying it is evidence. He gave evidence. 
Because again, you place something next to something else. To place beside or near. To set before. Um, a lot of times it's used in, in, in reference to food or you know, food for, for a banqueting table. To place food down. You lay it down. The same thing with evidence. You go to court, you lay it down, the evidence, so it can be examined. Next slide, please. And before, well, actually, before we go to the next slide, just, it's, I think it's important to, to note that, uh, that this was effective. You know, some of the Jews were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, and then also a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. So his technique his, it was efficient, it was effective. So now the next one. But unfortunately, these twin sisters, if you will, or twin brothers, I don't know how you want to look at it, jealousy and envy, you know, they, they raise their ugly heads. And a lot of times, you know, when God's doing things, you know, sometimes people get jealous, they get upset. And I think jealousy and envy are a really odd thing. So, I mean, I get envy a little bit. I get envy. I don't understand jealousy. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But first, let's see what happens because of jealousy and envy. Okay, so, so there's a lot of Jews that are being convinced. Yes, awesome. This is great news. Jesus is the Messiah. We see the scriptures. It makes sense. Yeah, give me Jesus. It makes sense. It's, it's in the scriptures. We see it. We see it clearly. There's good evidence. So let's just respond to this. God's doing something here. But then there's others Others, meaning maybe they rejected the message, they were unbelieving, and what happened is they became jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Basically, they went out and just got some thugs, some meatheads, to cause problems. I mean, how, how spiritual is that? Well, it's none at all. They formed a mob, started a riot in the city. Great. They rushed to Jason's house. There's this fellow named Jason who Paul and Silas were they're staying with them, apparently, in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So again, I mean, this dangerous job that Paul and Silas had here, every town they went to, they're nearly killed. But we've already talked about that. Is it worth it? For Paul and Silas, we've already discussed that time and time again. For them, it's very much so worth it. But I want to look at this jealousy and why, does it, why is it so dangerous? Why is it so harmful? Well, James 3, 14, 16 says this, but if you have bitter jealousy, okay, so bitter jealousy, that's a good way of describing jealousy. It's bitter, it's sour, it's urgh. Selfish ambition, and that's a good way of defining, you know, again, I, I think that's more of a jealous thing than it is an envious thing. Selfish ambition. Again, uh, uh, I mean, right ambition is a good thing. You know, to, to have the desire to, to, to succeed and do well. You know, if you have a vision or a mission, the desire to see it through, that's a good thing. But here we have selfish ambition. It's one who just looks after oneself, you know? And so James is warning us of these things, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. If you have it in your heart, do not boast and be false to truth. I like that as well. Do not boast and be false to truth. I think that's actually kind of funny. What does it mean to be false to the truth. That's kind of a funny one. I think other um, translations say it, um, uh, I can't remember, but I think it's funny. Basically, it's, it's being, don't be delusional. That's, that's how I look at it. Don't be delusional. Be real with yourself. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So that's, 
So, so wisdom that comes from jealousy and self-ambition, so that way of thinking, it's unspiritual. It's demonic. It's dangerous. Watch out for it. Where jealousy and self-ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy's dangerous. Now, I'm going to define I'm going to use a, a, a basic, generic Google definition. And the thing is, you can define it many different ways, but I, I'm going to use a, just a real generic definition in the next slide. But I want to think about what the scriptures say about these things first. They're, they're bad news, basically. Bad news. A tranquil heart. There's a contrast. Tranquility is a contrast to envy. You know what tranquility means? It means peace, satisfaction, and contentment. It's a contrast. While tranquility brings life to, the, to your body, envy makes your bones rot. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and there's a huge list of things. Two things listed in that is jealousy and envy. And these, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, there's a lot of scriptures that describe jealousy and selfish ambitions, envy as being a negative. In fact, I go beyond saying negative. They're destructive, dangerous. And here we see how destructive and injured is for Paul and Silas in their ministry. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? So it's powerful. According to the, to the proverb writer here, it's worse than wrath and anger itself. So next slide. As I promised, I want a quick, quick definition, quick, simple definition of what it is. What is this jealousy? What is this envy? Again, I'm going to start with envy because envy actually makes sense to me. And no, I'm not talking about the beauty salon on Shotskirk Road. I, it's funny because I Google searched envy. The first thing that came up was, the, was a beauty salon. And I was going to get a picture of it and stick it there, but... And it didn't really fit on my slide. The apples fit better. So anyways, envy. Envy to me, I get. It's a feeling of discontent, of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possession, qualities, or luck. So it's basically looking over your neighbor's fence and saying, I want what they have. That's what envy is. I, I want what she has. I like how she looks. I like how, she's, how, how fit she is and how pretty she is. Or I like his car. I like his toys. I, I want to be that, like that. And so I get envy. I get looking at some, what someone has and wanting what they have. I kind of get that. But that's really what it is, a feeling of discontent. So you're not really content with what you have because you want someone else's. I don't understand jealousy so much. Jealousy is an emotion and the word typically refers to the thoughts and the feelings of insecurity, fear, concern, and anxiety over anticipated loss of status or something of great value of person. So it's like, I don't want you to take something from me. You're spending time with my friend. I'm jealous. You know, oh, you've got a promotion that I want. I'm jealous. Oh, you got that. You see where it's like, I feel like I'm losing out on something because you're getting. The reason why I don't get this is because I actually like my life a lot. And if you do well, praise God. I don't want what you have. And I don't think I'm going to miss out on anything because I'm pretty confident that God's given me the best. 
I mean, and the thing I have no complaints. And I think for a Christian, if you have a really content, balanced life, there shouldn't be any room for jealousy. I don't get jealousy. Now, bear in mind, I can be envious from time to time. Like, oh man, that's really cool. You did what? Oh, you did? Oh, I, I didn't get that. But what we don't want to do is, is look at these strong words, like friends for envy. Resentful, longing, aroused. That's pretty strong. Now, have hints of like, oh man, that's cool. You got that. Or, oh man, I wish I had that. That's one thing. But this resentful longing, it's like you think about it and you obsess about it and it starts to arouse this thing in you. That, that's dangerous. And again, look what happens with jealousy. Look at these terms like insecurity, fear, concern, anxiety. You don't, we don't want these things in our lives because you're anticipating a loss. Now, again, I don't know if this is even a right definition. It's a Wikipedia definition, so it could be anyone's definition. But I think it's a good place to start. You know, we can look at this and say, well, I don't like this, I don't like that, well, I want to change it, and you can look somewhere else. But I think it's a good place to start. So these are the kinds of things that we need to be careful of, and these are the kinds of things that cause these, 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 these fellas, these Jewish fellas, to want to actually go out and do something really quite horrible to, to, like, to go out and to hire a mob to cause another person harm is a horrible thing. Next slide. And then next we're going to see this, this trial. Poor old Jason, you know, he's going to find himself in a, a little trial himself. Why? Not because of what he's done, per se, you know, it's what Paul and Silas done, but it's because of his association with Paul. So we see here then in verse 6, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. Shame on you, Jason. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Again, a lot of twisting of words. This is not their intention to like diss this, the, the Caesar or dis, you know, you know, any of the, the tetriarchs. The intention here was was to declare Jesus as the king, the king of the Jews, in, in right and in, in his rightful place, but isn't to diss the Caesar or anyone else. But the, but but they're twisting it because they are saying, you know, basically they don't want you, they don't want people to worship Caesar to to give him what he so-called deserves. All this worship and adoration belongs to Jesus, which actually is true. But it's a bit of a twisting. That's not the point of the message. So when they heard these things, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And we know scriptures about trials. Uh, James has this one, James 1, 2, 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the reason why I have these scriptures is because I thought, you know, I don't know if you guys encounter this in your lives. Like, you know, call yourself a Christian. So you associate yourself with Christ and with the church. You know, do you feel like you know, people are coming down on you? Or do you feel persecuted or, or maybe even thought of negatively? Because you know? trials can come in different ways and shapes and sizes. Well, if that is the case, then have joy. Say, so, yeah, you know what? You don't like me as I'm a Christian? Cool. 
That's not going to bum me out. I've got joy because you know what? Jesus was rejected. The apostles were reading in Acts. They were rejected everywhere they went. Imagine this. Imagine this. See, this is a big holiday. Paul and Silas exploring, you know, Europe. And everywhere they go, they get beat up and kicked out. <laughs> what a horrible holiday trip that is, you know? But you know what? We know it's not a holiday. It was their job. It was their task. It was their mission. But you know what? They weren't, they weren't, they weren't upset. They moved on. It was uncomfortable. It wasn't ideal. But they didn't lose their spirit. They didn't lose their joy. Because they, if anything, they probably saw these trials as confirmation of what they were doing was right. Because remember what Jesus said. And Jesus said, they, they hate me and they persecute me. Don't think any more. Don't expect any more from them. Because you, you're serving me and I'm the Lord. They reject me, they're going to reject you. <coughs> First Peter says this, 1 Peter 4, 12, 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. I don't get this, God. Why is it that I'm going through these trials? Don't think it as strange. But rejoice. Have joy again. Insofar as you share. Okay, that's a cool way of thinking about it. Jason, you know, imagine Jason. Imagine you're Jason, okay? And you open your house to these missionaries. Next thing you know, you're getting persecution. Oh, man, I'm I'm not going to do that again. That's it. Forget these missionaries. I'm not letting missionaries in my house anymore because every time I do, I get persecuted. So I quit. Is that the right attitude? Well, according to James and Peter, it's not the right attitude. According to James and Peter, you're having trials for opening your home to missionaries? Well, praise God for that. But rejoice. Why? Because you're sharing in Christ's suffering. Missionaries are going through trials. You're going through trials. And it's a long line, a long historical lineage that goes all the way back to the suffering of Christ. You're sharing in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And of course, we're looking at the future. We're looking forward to uh, God's great promises. We're almost there, guys. But I want to move on to the next town. It's just been five minutes. I mean, this next town, the next slide, is really a cool place. I mean, everyone, everyone who knows the Bible, everyone who says the Bible knows that the Bereans are amazing. And I want to end with the Bereans because the Bereans are amazing. They're, they're the ideal church. In fact, you know what? We're, the cornerstone's very much like the Bereans. At least I hope it is. If I'm delusional and I think we're like the Bereans, let me have that delusion because I love the Bereans. Because the Bereans, the Bereans are amazing. They're such a cool church. Every, every pastor wants a church to be like the Berean churches. That's why I subtitled it, The Good Students. <laughs> so Thessalonica, it was good. We saw you know, a, a fruitful ministry. But we're also going to see a fruitful ministry in Berea as well. I'll just stop. I want to take a side note. Think about all the trials and persecutions that Paul and Barnabas suffered on the first missionary journey, where they almost died. Imagine if they lost their spirit and refused to take the second journey, the second missionary journey. Imagine if that broke their spirit and, and, and squashed them and hurt them and broke them so bad they refused to go a second time. Then we wouldn't have the Thessalonians. We wouldn't have the Bereans. Think their journey. Because they had some trials on the second journey. Imagine if they said, you know what, that's it, I'm tired, let's go home. But no, they didn't. They extended their journey all the way into Macedonia, all the way down into Greece. 
I mean, it takes some, you have to have endurance. You have to have, count the cost and have a, a considerable amount of like longevity, personal longevity. I'm going to stick this thing through. I'm going to be dedicated. Because if you are dedicated, I believe like Paul and like Silas, you will see some amazing things. And what I'm saying, what okay, so we mean we, Scott? No one here is traveling to anywhere. No, I'm talking about your Christian life. I'm talking about your walk with God. I'm talking about your journeys with your friends who you're banging your head up against the wall. When are they going to listen? When are they going to get it? Your families, you know, you're, you've been praying for and praying for and praying for, and there's, you're still not getting through. Keep going. Paul and Barnabas, they, they saw a lot of trials, but they kept going. There was a longevity. They had a great endurance. And eventually, oh God, eventually, hopefully, we'll see some Bereans. And that's what we're finally getting to. And this is where we're going to end with the Bereans. So it says in verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character. Now the word noble can mean born of a noble family, or it could be noble-minded. You know, so not necessarily born from a noble family, but astute. You know, upright in their thinking. You know, genuine in thoughts and pursuits. You know, seeking good, right things, virtuous things. And I think because of the way the scriptures unfold, because of, of why they're being considered to be noble, I think that this latter definition is preferable, this idea of noble-mindedness. So these Bereans, they were astute thinkers, if you will. More so than even those in Thessalonica, which was a positive experience. Again, why we want our churches to be like Bereans, because they were astute. They were noble, they were in mind. Necessarily born in a noble family, like blue-blooded or posh, whatever. But it doesn't matter where they came from, their family. What matters is what they're doing with themselves now. And they were astute. They were thinkers. They lived, they want to seek a higher life for themselves and for their family. So what they do, they receive the message with great eagerness. Eagerness, zeal, spirit, an inclination, a readiness, a mind. They weren't like, I oh, can't be bothered. This religious stuff, ah, whatever. You know, just whatever. I don't care. Yeah, whatever. It's good for you, but not good for me. No, they had an open mind. Let's talk about it. Let's think about it. They were zealous. They wanted to know God. They were like thirsty, dry sponges ready to soak it in. Oh, man, the Bereans are amazing. Great eagerness. And then what they do? Like the Thessalonians, they examine the scripture. Every day to examine, to judge, to investigate, to inquire, scrutinize. Do, you, do we scrutinize the word? Do we sift through it and question what's going on? Do we, you know, again, this is used in, in, in forensic to, to, you know, sense, to judge, like having an investigation, you know, what's going on here? We need some evidence. We need to scrutinize the evidence to interrogate, examine. So we get the idea. It's a thorough, weighing, balancing they study the Bible in a way I think a lot of people should be ashamed of if they don't study the Bible. Scrutinize, to think, to, to examine. The idea here is just 
The Bereans, that's what they have the reputation of. This is the Berean reputation. They received the message and they examined it. They thought about it. They scrutinized the scriptures. They looked at the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying is true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of the prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Again, in Thessalonica, people were turning their lives. They were turning to God. In Berea, they're turning to God. And let's just finish this out in this last slide, guys. Verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God to Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring up. It's just like we've seen before. It's funny how Satan uses the same techniques. Remember how they're chasing him about earlier when the first trip? Now they're chasing him about here in Macedonia. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Imagine Paul bummed he was. Finally, I found my people. These are the people I want to spend my whole life with. I'm sick of the people who don't listen to me. <laughs> I finally met people who actually listen, and they're willing to do the work. Poor Paul finally found those people he's been looking for his whole life, and guess what? He has to go to the coast. Actually, it might be nice at the coast. It's in Greece, bear in mind. But anyways, so here he is. He's sent away. Finally, he found the thing his heart longs for, you know, people who can hear the gospel, but he has to go away and leave it behind with some trusted ministers. He leaves it behind with Silas and Timothy. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left them with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible because he wanted to keep on going to his mission. So with this, because there was actually quite a lot we dealt with today, I want to give you three points of application, and then we'll leave with this. So we'll conclude with three points of application. Straightforward. The first point of application is this. I think it's important that we know what the Bible says really well. Don't be afraid to study it and read it and be acquainted with it. I find that even like with, I think, I, honestly guys, with every area of my life, the better I know the Bible, the, I think the more fulfilled I am. Like even when like, like, like in conversations, like, at, like on university forums, somebody will find out we're Christian and throw out some questions and they'll add the Bible verse. And I'm like, oh, I know that Bible verse really well because I study it. And I'll answer the question. And they're like, oh, I mean, what would happen if I didn't know the Bible? I, you know, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. You know what I'm saying? So every area of your life, there's opportunities to, 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 to exercise your knowledge of the Bible, and not only for your self-fulfillment, but to be helpful, to give a defense, to give an answer for others who are needing questions answered. So know your Bible, guys. Don't be afraid to read it and study it really well. You too can study your Bible. You don't need me. So you can give evidence for what you believe in. Be like a Berean. Examine the word with an open mind. Number two, beware of jealousy and envy. They're just ridiculous. Okay, they're just stupid. Don't waste your time with these things. Don't let it destroy you. Don't let it bring you down. Don't succumb to it. Be, and beware of others who succumb to it. Because it may affect you in a negative way. So we need to be careful how it affects us, ourselves. And, and if you see someone succumbing to it and their behavior changes, pray for them. You know, pray for them. But don't let it affect you guys. And number three, beware that when you associate yourself with God and his work, you will be under attack by our spiritual enemy. We saw that with Jason. All he did was open his home for these missionaries. And he was under attack by the spiritual enemy. Who sometimes uses other people to try to bring us down. Okay, so we talked about three things that we can apply to our lives. So hopefully this um, is helpful. We are...